Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells. Hi, everybody. Welcome to That Privacy Podcast. It's uh, Thursday afternoon. We're here in the offices of Hogan Lovells uh, for our classic kind of half-hour chat, slightly unplanned, <laughs> run-through of the uh, issues and topics and things that we're seeing um, our clients and our colleagues talk about uh, in the world of data protection and privacy. So as usual here with Lex, uh, Alexis Kalafidis and Edouard Ustram, my name is David Longford and I hope you enjoy the next 30 minutes or so. So guys, let's just uh, quickly kind of recap. Uh, we last met four or five weeks ago at the IAPP um, intensive in London. That was mm-hmm. great to be back. Uh, hope everybody listening enjoyed it. If you, if you listened to that episode, certainly we did in front of a, a nice audience of interested uh, people hearing us talk about mainly UK data protection reform. Um, so what have you been up to since then? That was kind of a month ago. Yes, well, uh, I managed to go to another conference, to the IAPP summit in, yes. in Washington. But in, in both cases, what was quite nice, obviously, was to be able to interact with people again, as if nothing had happened. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I guess we were all risking uh, getting COVID again. But you know, uh, putting that aside, it's just going back to the ability to that ability to listen to speakers at a conference mingling with people interacting with regulators and with uh, other um, other professionals is just really nice yeah and that that kind of mingling with people when you're at a conference in person and the keynote speaker that kind of stardust is it's kind of nice isn't it to be back when someone like tim cook comes to speak uh, at the summit it's kind of great to be around that isn't it yeah and you know kudos to the iapp for lining up such amazing keynote speakers yeah we had uh tim cook from apple uh, we had Brad Smith from from Microsoft, so they kind of the two sides of the at least uh, from in my days those were the two the two big players, but um, also no very nice um, points of view uh, even about I know the uh, freedom of information commissioner of Af- of Afghanistan in the sure. days when you could have freedom of information in Afghanistan and I mean to, the IPP is very good at providing those perspectives historical and and you know, yeah. wide picture perspectives of the issues that we, we're working on. And what were some of the things, Eduardo, that everybody was talking about? I mean, I think I can, <laughs> I think I can guess a couple of things, but what were, what were some of the hot topics that you saw? Yeah, so uh, the one in Washington was very shortly after the announcement about the new framework, the new Trust Atlantic Data Privacy Framework. So there was a lot of discussion, at least the discussions I, I was involved in uh, around that and the prospect of success of that uh, framework. There was a lot of uh, discussion around what was happening in the UK. I was asked by a number of people uh, how the UK was going to react to its new found uh, freedom in terms of being able to do different, do things differently from from the EU, but not being too uh, too crazy about it. So that the the policy side of things is obviously obviously a, a big item in a conference like that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, David and I didn't go, but um, a lot of our colleagues were there. I know that, yeah, transfers was a particular hot topic they came back to us on and mentioned 
couple of other things in there. I mean, I think one of the things that everybody is always interested is particularly from that networking aspect that you mentioned, Eduardo, of everybody coming together and talking about things is, um, I guess for want of a better word, that benchmarking aspect of how, how are you getting on with your program? How are you facing you know, some of these challenges that we're facing with this particular law or this particular topic of data subject rights and really trying to embrace the knowledge share <laughs> yeah yeah it is true you know that's a good way of you put it the, the benchmarking because quite often you know i'm sure your clients do the same but our clients come to us being very sophisticated as they all are saying we already know the law but we just wanted to know what others are doing about this issue what was your experience and they almost use us as a uh, as a sounding board to, yeah. to 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 know what others are doing so of course if you can do that live with other colleagues, counterparts of different organizations that do the same thing as you do live in person. That's amazing. Yeah. And in terms of getting different perspectives, so on the uh, transatlantic agreement issue, um, I've got a couple of questions just to speculate on. Number one, if it's true that we've got an announcement without a lot of the detail worked out yet, I'm saying if because I don't know that, but that seems to be the case. We've got you know a good commitment to get something done without a lot of the finer details released, at least. Mm -hmm. If that is the case, how does it help the the stakeholders involved, the Commission and the Presidency, to announce it? You know, we're doing something before you release a text. How? I mean, that's maybe more of a political question. How it helps them, but the other point is, which you know, we're more involved in. How does it help industry? to actually move forward if they hear this sure. is happening, but they haven't got anything to work with. Of course. I think the reason why an announcement was made at this stage with no detail being provided is that I'm sure the detail is, is there. Right. Not, not to be revealed just yet, but it is there. However, there is so much pressure to make progress on this. There is so much at stake in relation to international data transfers to the US that even though the parties are not in a position to reveal all the details that they are working on, they, they have already worked on, I think they were under pressure to show that that agreement is in place mm -hmm. and that it's just the formalities that need to be worked out. And the idea behind that is to give people faith, as I think, in terms of what is happening and the fact that there will be a new uh, safe harbor or a new privacy shield or a new however we, we call it, but that something that will, again, facilitate those data transfers between the EU and, and the US. And I think that's important. To It is important to provide that level of reassurance to organizations. Yeah. I was just going to say, just on that pressure front, because I was thinking um, the other day, because I got asked to uh, think about next month, and obviously there's another anniversary coming around for the GDPR, and it also made me think um, ahead of ahead of this podcast, and you know, thinking about data transfers that were almost um, a couple of years since you know the shrimp, well, shrimp's two ruling, and. Um, obviously, things like the Privacy Shield last time, you know, went about maybe a little bit more quickly. There was a lot more that was said 
um, throughout the build-up time to a new privacy shield that you know negotiations were underway straight away and this is where we are and all of this um, but we had been pretty silent up until this announcement a few weeks ago and yeah I think um, I, I agree with you Eduardo that I think you know there's um, a, a lot there to, to try and alleviate concerns that there isn't anything happening <laughs> or will we actually see a revised um, framework or are we going to be dealing with things like TIAs for the US for I think also it's important to give the message out that the US government has listened to the uh, to the voices of of the European Union the European um, uh, Court of Justice mm -hmm. that it is it understands the requirements around proportionality around redress and that work has gone into addressing those requirements and it's again we'll have to see the detail but to me to be told by those who have uh, been asked to do some work that that work is underway and that they know what your requirements are and that there is a commitment to meet those requirements. You know, I think it's better to be told that than not to be told anything at all or that um, your requirements don't matter. Yeah. So I think uh, we need to take that. That's why I see that from a, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about it because I think that if someone is saying we're listening to what you're saying, that means that they'll probably be doing something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, it's fascinating to, to find out exactly what the detail is, right? We've got, you mentioned redress, so how will that work in practice? Will it give, you know, um, citizens on, on this side of the Atlantic in, in the EU the, the satisfaction that their data is protected in terms of, you know, US intelligence agencies, all this kind of, um, all this kind of thing. Um, yeah, so, yeah, fascinating to get into the details. Any uh, other thoughts on this before we move on, Alexis? I mean, it's, the only thing that I'd say is that it, it's going to be one thing that I'm sure we'll continue to talk about for a long time, right? I mean, we've got, you know, what's what remains to be seen from the transatlantic data privacy framework or whatever it ends up being called. We've got, we were talking last month about the UK reforms and obviously your involvement um, over here in the UK, Eduardo, on the expert council on international data transfers and the UK's approach the other day. Um, there was this um, announcement as well that um, participating countries um, noted around the global CBPR forum, which was uh, an interesting announcement as well. And it seems like there is, it just seems at the moment, there is a, a big global concerted effort around, you know, cross-border data flows. Um, so I think... <laughs> It's just going to be something that we'll, we'll be continuing to talk about. I don't think it's a yeah. done and dusted. Yeah, because it's so important. The thing is, international data transfers is a, it's a very technical term to really define what the economy is about today. We, the, the economy is about data and we live in a global economy. So international data transfer is about making that economy work. The question is, how do you do it in a way that is compatible with respecting data protection, respecting privacy? 
again, at, at, at that global scale. So I think there is a lot of at, at stake and there is a lot of work to be done in terms of finding that common ground that allows that uh, global uh, data flow structure to, to function, but at the same time data continues to be protected both by those organizations that have access to it and also protected from um, the power of the state which of course is so much of the focus at the moment. And then the other thing that I think is really, really important about the US announcement about this transatlantic data privacy framework is that if the US is going to change its law to apply uh, some perhaps greater restrictions to the access to data and to deploy some kind of redress mechanism through a new court or something like that, that has implication not just for the privacy shield itself and the adequacy of the US, but it has implications from the point of view of today the transfer impact assessments, for example. Right. So even if you don't rely on the privacy shield as such for yeah. the transfers, and most people don't, you know, in the whole scheme of things, um, the privacy shield is compared to in, in standard contractual clauses, it's a small. Um, tool if you want. Yeah. But the, the standard contractual clauses that are much more universally relied on also will also benefit from the US changes in law because that transfer impact assessment that looks at how well standard contractual clauses perform will be measured against a regime that is very different or at least significantly different from what it is today. And therefore the, that balance will be tilted towards the protection of the data between the fact that the, the US uh, access to data by government is more, let's say, restricted and at the same time the protections of the data are there through those contractual mechanisms. So I think we need to be aware of that bigger picture. Yeah, it's a super interesting point because, you know, I think the same thing obviously happened with, um, you know, the Privacy Shield after Safe Harbor was invalidated and organizations that may not have had alternative mechanisms in place at that time because of the timing. It was, you know, many years ago, many organizations were just safe harbor certified and did not have other mechanisms in place. That kind of changed and organizations between that gap period of Privacy Shield had to move to standard contractual clauses and continued to rely on them even when they recertified through Privacy Shield as an alternative mechanism. And of course, Privacy Shield was invalidated. So it, 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 is an interesting element considering that, you know, if we do end up with a transatlantic data privacy framework, and again, organizations recertify to it that, as you say, they can utilize that framework as part of their ongoing alternative mechanism that they might also wish to continue to have in place through their SCCs that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that brings us on to a kind of related point well Tim was also talking about federal privacy law now we've heard you know keynote speakers talk about this before as you guys were just describing I was thinking well okay well if an organization you know utilizing the new privacy shield has also got this uh, parallel 
system or mechanism for validating data transfers, so they're protected or they're flexible, let's say. Uh, and the US has produced a system which enables redress from EU citizens. There's a lot of building blocks starting to be put in place, right, in terms of the US privacy framework and not to mention the four, is it four or five states yeah. that have now enacted laws or yeah. are on the way to enacting laws? Mm -hmm. it's, it's gaining momentum, isn't it? Now, I don't know what the final piece being not on the ground over there, I guess there's other political uh, winds that need to blow in the right direction for this to happen, but it does feel like you know, if the new framework comes into place and, and satisfies at least a lot of people on, on the European side, then yes, it's starting to move that way. Certainly, I mean, the calls from industry, or at least the big players, for a federal privacy act in the US have never been louder because, you know, literally in the last few weeks. So at the IAPP summit, we had both Apple and Microsoft really insisting that that was a must have. And the, the, the rhetoric coming from both uh, Tim Cook and Brad Smith was very, very powerful. Yes. Uh, more recently, um, I think it was the CEO of Google right. was making a, the same, not, not at the IPP summit, I think we'll, we'll need, they will need to invite him at the, at the next, for the next yeah. event. But look, he was making exactly the same point. So the, these business leaders you know, are all very emphatic that this is a must-have. And I think you would, you would think that they are pretty influential in the, in the thinking of politicians and policymakers. And of course, there are other, uh, other perspectives from a, from a very different side of, of this spectrum that will be pushing for the same type of, of law. The question is, you know, how, how can you find the, uh, the common ground and the right, the, the right level of detail and all that and what the right obligations are. But I think from that perspective, and without being a, a US lawyer, my, my view is that the, there is a it's, a, it's almost like a, an obvious outcome that we're going to see in the next year or couple of years. Really? That's strong. Wow. I, I, wow. I, mean, I haven't heard anyone saying it's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. And the other, the other thing related to that is the, this domino effect, right? I mean, how many states do you need to enact their own version of a privacy uh, framework before it just becomes too complicated, right? Like the breach notification stuff. Yeah, yeah. although there isn't a, a data breach notification, a federal data there breach notification, so, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, that in itself may not be a strong enough argument. But at the same time, I think it does contribute to the momentum because mm -hmm. when you see states adopting these laws, that, that means that, politi I guess, politically, it becomes an attractive thing to do rather than a scary thing to do. Yep. So we've got this, you know, long running but definitely gathering momentum for feeling on the US side. On the EU side, we've all been talking, well, the three of us have been talking internally and, you know, with our teams and colleagues about other developments separate but gathering momentum in, in the EU. So we're gonna, <laughs> we've got very limited time on this podcast, but we're going to try and talk a little bit about it because there's a lot happening, right? And, so much. And it's fascinating when you, you, <laughs> you start to get into it and you, you know, the, the, yeah, there's so much to cover. So we've got a European data strategy as a kind of headline here, right? Obviously, uh, probably commission-driven, I imagine, um, and uh, there's a lot of bits under it. You know, we've got uh, Alexis. Correct me if some of these acronyms are wrong. I know you know your acronyms. Uh, D DGA, Data Governance Act, D Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act, AI Act, Data Act, separate. 
Um, so let's just dive in and you know talk about one or two. Eduardo, which which one or two have you have you been looking at mostly or hearing the most about at the moment? First of all, uh, it's interesting that we are transitioning from talking about U.S. law to European law, yeah. and quite often. Uh, you know, from a U.S. perspective, they kind of mock the EU in terms of moving very slow. The Europe moves so slowly and all that. Well, here we have the humble, old-fashioned European Union in the process of adopting simultaneously all these laws you are talking about. So I think you mentioned five plus the NIS uh, directive plus the e-privacy. I mean, there, there are seven, seven new laws in the pipeline all of which will probably be adopted in the next two or th two years maximum. Um, you know, once the U.S. is still trying to figure out whether. But yeah, so of the stuff that is happening in at, the, at an EU level, I think you have. We try to we, within our team when we discuss it, we try to group them a little bit, in the sense that you have the 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 ones that are more about data. And when we talk about data in, now in this country, it's not personal data, all kinds of data. So that's the, the Data Act and the Data Governance Act. And it's all about facilitating the sharing and the availability of data. And this, this idea that there is this uh, data lakes all over the place and how can the law facilitate the use of this data. And just to jump in, that relates back to your point previously, I think one of your points previously on the digital economy, right? That's kind of directly kind of pushing uh, that as a, as a benefit to the digital economy. Exactly. So the, the, both the Data Governance uh, uh, Act and the Data Act have provisions there about international data transfers, uh, uh, about the availability of the data, facilitating the sharing of the data. So that's one block. The other um, big block, of course, is the, uh, the one of the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act both of which are to do with the digital world and the, the, the ambition of the European Union to be the center of the universe for anything to do with the digital economy. Okay. And the Digital Services Act, of course, is, is aiming uh, to replace the old e-commerce uh, directive, but uh, changing quite radically the scope in terms of the amount of new types of businesses that now qualify as, as being within the scope of, of that and, and the responsibility that they all have for the content and, and the information and there are new, new concepts and new uh, almost offenses in terms of what you can or cannot do with with data, but also with, with information. And then, of course, the Digital Markets Act, which is essentially a competition law uh, regulation that is aimed at making sure that it complements, as it were, the existing competition law framework in a more modern and perhaps radical way to ensure that all these big players that are, are basically ruling the world right now uh, are not put are not in a position of such level of dominance that the, you know, they, they truly rule the world. So then it's very political, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, so you've got those four laws, and then you got in parallel the uh, um, Artificial Intelligence Act. Mm -hmm. That I think that's more slow burning in a way, mm -hmm. and I think that that will take a little bit longer. And then of course the, you have 
as I mentioned, also the NIS directive dealing with essentially cybersecurity. Yeah. Plus the e-privacy directive that again is, is almost like the one that started a long time ago. So we, all of that is very much interlinked and all of it is interlinked to the GDPR. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, new, a new set of, uh, of laws that we're going to have to learn and to, to, to be able to, to live with. Yeah, but particularly we were talking before about which ones are most relevant for, for the privacy community. And although, as you said, it's maybe the one that's the slower burner among that, but the, the AI uh, Act definitely, you know, encourages kind of to take a DPIA approach to, to utilising AI or machine learning and help, try, I think it tries to help organisations by putting in kind of tiers, high, medium, low, etc. in terms of risk, um, which, you know, not every organization that uses AI is an expert on AI, right? So I think from what I've read, that could be quite helpful. I think it's been criticized for being a bit too, maybe too light or not offering enough protections, but... Uh, <laughs> there are always views on that. I think what is interesting, and we were discussing this within our, our team yeah. this week, someone from my team, so I won't take credit for this, uh, made, made the point that we're used to seeing things from this optic of controller processor and the data protection law. And the controller is the one that has the main responsibility and the processor is there to help out. The AI act is almost the other way around where the provider yeah. of AI, which we would normally associate with being a processor, so the, 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 the technology developer that is yeah. there to provide the service, under the AI Act has the lion's share of the obligations. And then the user of AI, which again in, in data protection terms would be more like the controller, is has more limited responsibilities. So it's, I think from this is for example the type of change that is testing our, our the way in which we look at things. You know, in the privacy world, in the data protection world, we've always looked at things in, in this in this way. And I think now we're going to have to look at things slightly differently. And in addition to learning the new rules, we need to learn a new way of thinking in terms of who has responsibility for what. And I think that's, again, it's a process that we are all going to have to go through uh, in, the, in the years to come, but that we need to make sure we end up mastering because it's really going to affect what we do on a daily basis. And just thinking about, you know, that we're all, you know, going to have to learn and you know, coming back to that point of the interlinking between all of these laws and GDPR, obviously we as privacy professionals pay a lot of attention to data protection authorities, privacy authorities, uh, you know, here in the EU, the EDPB, and we're going to see similar bodies to the EDPB also be set up under these laws that are going to be issuing these guidelines that we can learn from and try to connect dots between guidelines from one body and the other body and maybe you know overlapping and relinking between each other so I guess from a a policy perspective even for you know the EDPB and DPAs to interact with those new bodies on issues around AI for example of coming together with a harmonized approach that you know one body isn't saying one thing and especially with this new way of thinking as you described of the AI Act which kind of shifts the onus onto more of the 
traditional processor term, as it were. And it's very interesting when you look at all these very different laws and, and initiatives, you know, the, the Data Governance Act or the Digital Services Act or the AI Act, all with the slightly different aims. They all borrow from the GDPR right. a lot of concepts and a lot of thinking about harmonization, about international data transfers, about responsibility, about uh, proportionality and fairness and transparency. So I guess that we, and in this community in which we operate, we are uh, in a good position to learn these new, new rules because ultimately they are borrowing a lot from what we are used to seeing. But um, yeah, the EDPB, for example, may end up playing a much bigger role in the next two, three, four, five years yeah. than it has today or it was envisaged under the GDPR. And again, those regulators are going to have to learn how these new laws operate and what they're trying to achieve. And harmonization will be essential, in my view, in trying to make sure that there is a consistent interpretation of the law and a consistent implementation of that law. Mm -hmm. And also fascinating, it will be fascinating to see from a UK perspective, obviously we're talking about reforming the GDPR in the, you know, for the UK, but uh, you know, will there be versions of these regulations that we devise for the UK? Uh, will we take pieces or leave other pieces behind? And you know, you'd imagine that we would, we're not, you know, we're, we're still within Europe, but we're not within the EU. So you imagine there'd be some kind of like, uh, uh, influence that we'd, we'd take on. But. There's a bit of an unknown to be honest because unlike on data protection where there is a history of yeah. UK data protection law and sure there'll be reforms but they will take time and they will still be uh, they will there will still be a, a very large chunk of the existing framework that is, is, is the same or pretty much identical to the EU one. Mm -hmm. but on these new frameworks and laws that are being created literally as we speak, then the UK has a choice of having their entire new thinking about, about it or, or, you know, like the US, for example, may not do anything about this or may do something very different or looking at what is being done in, in the EU and saying, okay, maybe there are elements of this that we could use and add our own uh, secret uh, sauce and, and make it better or make it more flexible or make it more, more valuable for the economy. So I think that's all to play for, to be honest, in, in the UK. I guess from a personal point of view, it's so fascinating how we talked about US today, EU and UK devising policy that drives um, yeah, interesting to see how that plays out. So, thanks, gentlemen. We've reached half an hour. As usual, we could keep going, but uh, I think it's time to pause today. We've all got meetings. So, uh, if you've listened today or are listening later, um, thank you so much for joining. You can download previous episodes or uh, subscribe to keep listening to that privacy podcast in, in uh, the next few months. So, for myself, David, from Eduardo and Alexis, lovely to speak to you again. Have a great day. Thanks thank so you. much. That Privacy Podcast. Brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovelson.